0: Welcome to the July 2021 episode of Radiology Podcasts. I'm Dr. Linda Chu from Johns Hopkins University and Associate Editor of Podcasts for Radiology. In this episode, we will feature three topics. First, we'll talk about thermal ablation of papillary thyroid cancer. Next, we'll talk about the effect of infarct pattern in acute ischemic stroke in prediction of functional outcomes. Finally, we'll be talking about patient electronic access to final radiology reports. Dr. Lauren Kim will kick off today's program with her interview about thermal ablation of papillary thyroid cancer. We want to use our podcast program to feature authors from all around the world. The following interview with Dr. Beck, a thyroid imaging expert from Korea, was recorded in Korean with English translation voiceover. The link to the original Korean interview will be posted on the website. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Hi, this is Lauren Kim, co-host of the Radiology Podcast. In this month's issue of Radiology, Xiao Jing Sao and co-authors present a multi-center retrospective study on the efficacy and safety of thermal ablation of solitary T1N0M0 papillary thyroid carcinoma. The study consisted of 847 patients who underwent thermal tumor ablation from 2015 to 2020 in 14 hospitals in China, subsequently followed for a minimum of 22 months. The aggregate analysis of patients with T1A and T1B tumor demonstrated 100% technical success, 68% definitive tumor ablation, and only a 3% complication rate with symptoms spontaneously resolving in all patients within six months. Only 1% of patients develop disease progression with development of either new foci, of thyroid malignancy, or lymph node metastasis. This issue of radiology also features an accompanying editorial by Drs. Won Beth and Sejun Cho of South Korea entitled Thermal Ablation for Small Papillary Thyroid Cancer, a Potential Game Changer wherein they highlight the clinical importance of Sao and co-authors' findings. The present standard of care of patients diagnosed with low-risk papillary thyroid carcinoma is active surveillance, consisting of routine imaging and lab examinations. Sao and co-authors' results suggest that thermal ablation of low-grade papillary thyroid cancer may provide a minimally invasive treatment alternative to active surveillance and or surgical thyroidectomy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jung Hwan Beck, author of the editorial, professor of radiology at Asan Medical Center in Seoul, South Korea, and president of the Korean Society of Thyroid Radiology, a pioneer and authority on this intervention. And we also welcome Dr. Hae Park, clinical fellow and future radiology faculty at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, here to translate Korean to English. Dr. Beck, Dr. Park, thank you for speaking with us. Dr. Beck. Thermal ablation of thyroid tumor is a novel concept to most American physicians. How long has it been in practice in Asia? First
2: of all, thank you for your invitation to this podcast. Our team treated our first patient in 2002, which is approximately 20 years ago, and the first patient was a 23-year-old female patient presented with a 4-centimeter benign thyroid nodule.
1: Who typically uh, performs these ablations? Interventional radiologists, ultrasound radiologists, or surgeons? I'm
3: a, head and neck radiologist. Korea,
2: I'm a head and neck radiologist. In Korea, typically radiologists most commonly perform the procedure. And recently, surgeons and endocrinologists also started performing the procedures.
1: The term thermal ablation of thyroid tumor refers to both microwave ablation and radiofrequency ablation. Are there major differences between these two techniques? And what are the major considerations in differentiating between these two options?
2: In Korea, we have used only RFA for the thyroid nodule treatment, which is approved by Korean FDA. We have developed our RFA-dedicated devices and techniques, and it's been successful. A microwave ablation probe is more potent and it covers the larger areas of the lesion compared to RFA. But the thyroid is a small organ where precision is more important than potency. Therefore, RFA achieves better safety and efficacy.
1: In this work by Asao and co authors, the imaging follow up of thermal ablation of T1 grade papillary thyroid carcinoma consisted of non contrast ultrasound every three months in the first post ablation year every six months in the second year, and then every 12 months thereafter, in conjunction with CT neck and chest annually to surveillance for nodal and distant metastatic disease. Contrast-enhanced ultrasound and biopsy were only performed in cases of suspected recurrence. Is this reflective of clinical practice? Uh, follow protocol
2: uh, varies from hospital no, to hospital. <laughs> i had a shorter follow-up protocol in the early 2000s when we had a little experience of rfa but have since transitioned to a longer follow-up protocol currently i use only ultrasound for benign thyroid nodule follow-up with doppler ultrasound but in cases of primary popular thyroid carcinoma or recurrent thyroid cancer i use both ultrasound and dedicated thyroid protocol CT neck
1: is there a clinical consensus as to how long follow-up surveillance after thermal ablation of papillary thyroid carcinoma should be carried out? Would five cancer-free years be sufficient, or should these patients be followed for life?
4: There's
2: no clear consensus for follow-up periods. However, at least 10-year follow-up should be minimum for the thyroid cancer considering the indolence to be nature. In cases of recurrence, the follow-up period should be longer.
1: In cases of T1-grade papillary thyroid carcinoma, why opt for radiofrequency ablation instead of active surveillance? Uh, Active surveillance is
2: Active surveillance is acceptable in majority of patients with low-risk papillary thyroid microcarcinoma, but there have been major concerns, especially in two aspects. First of all is the patient's anxiety. According to the most recent meta-analysis, there are surgeries most commonly done because of the patient's anxiety, not just because of patient's disease progression. However, there is little report regarding the delayed surgery after RFA. And another issue is that it's difficult to apply the same strategy of active surveillance in the young patients, considering the life expectancy. Uh, for example, if patient is diagnosed. Not her cancer. In twenty, when twenty years old, we have to watch for sixty years, which is not feasible. RFA seems to be effective in the younger patients with the same similar effect. Therefore, RFA could, could be the great alternative option for the young patients.
1: Dr. Beck, how would you summarize the importance of Saw and co-authors' work? What is the take-home message? Active
3: surveillance risk uh, I would
2: say active surveillance 아직, is the first-line uh, management tool for low-risk PTMC so far. However, active surveillance has several concerns in five-year systemic review and meta-analysis. Therefore, if future research establishes that RSA can, 그, can 그, solve these problems related to active surveillance, RFA will be a potential game-changer for the management
1: of low-risk PKMC suggested
2: by this paper.
1: And that concludes our interview. Thank you, Dr. Beck. We learned so much from your expertise and commentary. And thank you, Dr. Park, for the translation. A quick anecdote for our listeners, Hae-sun Park is actually a colleague of mine in Boston. While also being a former student of Dr. Beck in Seoul, South Korea, a case in point of how closely knit the world of radiology is. In the words of the great anthropologist Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And maybe that is what is meant by game changers. All right, thanks again. Thank you, Dr. Kim. As I mentioned
0: earlier, if you want to check out Dr. Beck's interview in Korean, you can click on a separate link on our website. Next up, we have Dr. Manisha Bahal's interview on the effect of infarct pattern on CT and MRI in prediction of functional outcomes in patients with acute ischemic stroke.
3: Hello, this is Manisha Bahal, co-host of the Radiology Podcast Program. This month's issue of Radiology features an original research article in the Neuroradiology section titled, a detailed analysis of infarct patterns and volumes at 24-hour non-contrast CT and diffusion-weighted MRI in acute ischemic stroke due to large vessel occlusion. Results from the ESCAPE-NA1 trial. I am delighted to be joined by the first author of this study, Dr. Johanna Ospel, and the senior author of this study, Dr. Mayank Goyal. Dr. Ospel is a radiology resident at the University of Basel in Switzerland, and a research fellow at the University of Calgary in Canada. Dr. Goyal is a professor in the Department of Radiology and Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Calgary, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada Chair in Stroke Research. Welcome to our podcast program, and thank you so much for joining. In your study of patients with acute ischemic stroke due to large vessel occlusion, you analyze infarct patterns and volumes at non-contrast CT and diffusion-weighted MRI obtained 24 hours after endovascular treatment, and then investigate the association between those infarct variables and 90-day clinical outcome. Dr. Goyal, could you please share what led you and your co-authors to conduct this study?
4: Thanks, Manisha, and thanks to the organizers of Radiology and RSNA for inviting us to this podcast. As a starting point, which probably most of the listeners are already aware of, in 2015, endovascular treatment for acute stroke due to large vessel occlusion became the standard of care. We published several papers in Lancet and NEGM. Subsequently, obviously, we did all kinds of additional analysis. And what we found was that there was some bit of a disconnect between the infarct size on follow-up and the patient outcome. And while there is a simplistic view that this may be related to brain eloquence, we were interested in studying that in greater degree of detail. Now, around three years ago, we started this trial called ESCAPE-NA1, where every patient underwent endovascular thrombectomy, and they were randomized to this novel neuroprotective agent called NA1. The way that the results played out in those patients that did not receive TPA NA1 showed benefit, but there was an interaction between NA1 and Alteplase, and Alteplase converted plasminogen to plasmin, which deactivated NA1. But it turned out that this was around 1,100 or so patients and was the perfect data set for us to have a better understanding of how varying patterns of infarct correlate with patient outcome, and whether as we move forward, we can have a greater degree of understanding of gray matter versus white matter versus deep gray matter. So that was our motivation for this study.
3: Thank you. Dr. Ospo, could you please describe the key
5: findings of your study? Thanks also for for having me, of course. What we basically did in this data set is we um, looked at those um, more than 1,000 patients, 1,026 patients, from a qualitative way and a quantitative way. Qualitative meaning looking at infarct patterns. So we um, looked at whether the infarct pattern was scattered, meaning lots of little small punctuate infarcts or territorial, meaning one large confluent area of infarction. We looked at the gray matter, at the white matter, and whether the infarct involved only the gray matter, which is quite frequent, or both gray and white matter. And then we also looked at the um, corticospinal tract and whether it was involved or not. And the second um, part was the quantitative part, where we actually um, segmented infarcted areas and looked at the volume of white matter infarct and gray matter infarct, and then also divided deep gray and superficial gray um, matter. What we found um, was quite interesting. We had some interesting findings in both parts, actually. Um, The first part, the qualitative part, showed that there were three key findings, namely that infarction of both gray and white matter yields um, a much worse outcome. Um worse outcome meaning less good outcome and good outcome was defined as modified ranking score zero to two. That means the patient is independent and able to care um, able to take care of him or herself, meaning there's no need for um help during the day, so they can go and buy their groceries alone and go to the washroom and so on. That's what we call a good outcome in acute ischemic stroke, and those um proportions of good outcome were much lower if there was white matter infarct upon visual inspection. The other thing that was really influential was um, the corticospinal tract. So when there was corticospinal tract involvement, um, outcomes were much worse. Only 12.7% of patients with corticospinal tract involvement achieved a good outcome. And when the corticospinal tract was not involved, it was 69% of patients who achieved a good outcome. So that was quite an important variable, actually. And the other thing that um, was important was the infarct pattern or infarct structure where we have seen that a scattered infarct volume is much better than a territorial infarct volume. That was, again, about a 30% difference in good outcome rates. That was for visual inspection, and that's something that every one of us could do every day when looking at a scan. We just look at the pattern and decide, is it more scattered or is it more territorial? And the second part was a little bit more um, yeah, scientific and perhaps less applicable to clinical practice, but still interesting, and that was those um, volumetric um, assessments where we segmented infarct volume and distinguished the gray and white matter infarct volume. And there we found that, again, white matter infarct volume is really important, seems to matter a little bit more than gray matter infarct volume. So when someone has a 5 ml um, infarct in the white matter, for instance, the good outcome rate is only about 40%. But when you have a 5 ml infarct in the gray matter, the good outcome rate is actually 65%. And all those findings, that's the most interesting part actually, They were um, independent of total infarct volume, which is the variable we usually look at when we talk about infarction. Usually, we only um, look at the entire infarct volume, and our study basically showed that those infarct patterns and the tissue-specific infarct volumes, they really do matter, and they can provide some additional important information um, over and beyond total infarct volume. Thank you.
3: Dr. Goyal, how will your findings impact the care of patients with acute ischemic stroke?
4: I think it's important for us to understand that an acute stroke due to large vessel occlusion, in spite of all the inroads that we've made with endovascular thrombectomy, approximately one-third of patients still don't have a good outcome. And as we move forward, we have to come up with strategies to further improve these outcomes. So this study takes us forward towards a better understanding of how is brain tissue getting affected, then once we have a better understanding, then we can do targeted, think about targeted interventions related to, for example, gray matter versus white matter or corticospinal tract, or as we move forward on the neuroprotection story, whether we should be aiming to create drugs that focus on white matter. The other part that is there is, obviously, this gives us further insight into helping families understand what the likely prognosis is going to be, so we are able to tell patients one day after their stroke as to what is the likely outcome uh, going to be in future, so it helps us prognosticate.
3: Thank you. Dr. Ospo, as a trainee, could you please describe your experience participating in this study and what you learned?
5: When I came to Calgary as a research fellow, the, the ESCAPE-N1 trial was almost done, actually. So um, I think a couple of months after I joined, the last patient was enrolled. The most impressive thing for me was um, to see how much work it takes and how many people are involved in such a multicenter trial. I think ESCAPE-N1 had, if I remember correctly, 48 centers um, across the world in Asia and Europe and North America, of course. Yeah my my part was a pretty small part it's basically a drop in the ocean so I segmented those um follow up infarct volumes and I thought that's a lot of work and it took me a couple of yeah weeks or a month actually to to do this of course as radiologists we're best at providing um, insight into imaging and analyzing images and the neurology part is best done by neurologists of course and even imaging is probably most impactful and most important or most meaningful in the context of um, the patient's clinical symptoms, of course. And so I think the the most interesting part for me was to see how well things can go if several disciplines work together in an effective way and are enthusiastic about the same idea and um, yeah, works towards, towards reaching a goal together.
3: Thank you. Dr. Goyal and Dr. Ospel, are there any other comments about your study that you would like to share?
4: I think one thing that we are moving forward with the neuroprotection story, so in follow-up from ESCAPE-NA1 study, which was published in Lancet, we have now started the ESCAPE-NEXT trial, which is basically a repeat to essentially be able to show that there are two consecutive studies that have similar results, and we are 39 patients enrolled now. It's a worldwide study with 85 sites across the planet. But at the same time, as we move down the neuroprotection study, I do think radiologists have a major role to play to help us with phase one studies, phase two studies, choose the right imaging protocol, have a better understanding of mechanism of action, have better measurement of outcome, which provides at a smaller sample size insight into what can be improved further. And I do think this study forms a great place to start about it, start thinking about it as to how we as radiologists can play a greater role in this journey.
3: Thank you for sharing your insights about this important topic. To all of our listeners, please be sure to check out the full-length article in this month's issue of Radiology titled, A Detailed Analysis of Infarct Patterns and Volumes at 24-Hour Non-Contrast CT and Diffusion-Weighted MRI in Acute Ischemic Stroke Due to Large Vessel Occlusion, Results from the ESCAPE-NA1 Trial. Until next time, this is Dr. Manisha Bahal for the journal Radiology. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bauhao. For our final segment, Dr. Refki Nikola will be chatting with Dr. Mesrick to discuss the issues surrounding patient electronic access to final radiology reports and how this may affect our daily
6: practice. Hello, I am Refki Nikola and the co-host of the Radiology Journal podcast. Today we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Mesrick, who's an assistant professor at Yale University Department of Radiology. He also has a law degree and an MBA. Before he began his medical school, he was working in Boston as a corporate attorney. He's now currently in the Division of Emergency Radiology and has a fellowship in Musculoskeletal Imaging. Today, we will be discussing his article entitled, Patient Electronic Access to Final Radiology Report. What is the current standard of practice and is an embargo period appropriate? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Please tell us, how did you transition from being a practicing attorney to a radiologist right now?
7: Absolutely. When I came out of college, an American history major, and the natural progression was to go to law school. uh, And I enjoyed it, but it wasn't really my calling. And so after a number of years of practice, I decided to try something different. So I uh, went to a post-bac. I hadn't taken most of the sciences and then uh, uh, went to medical school, and and, uh, here I am. It's been a a nice uh, background because it's allowed me to uh, delve into uh, medical legal issues, uh, which I write about uh, as often as I can. Tell us, give us some historical
6: context of why this rule of the 21st Century Cure Act is happening.
7: Okay, so the the genesis of the Cures Act uh, dates back to the Obama administration, and it initially was focused on uh, pharmaceuticals but gradually evolved to cover electronic healthcare data and information blocking issues. And the goal of the final rule is is really to empower patients and put them in charge of their health records, while at the same time promoting healthcare innovation and transparency. So, uh, and basically the the rule uh, supports uh, secure access for patients to their medical records and gives them the ability to shop around and manage costs.
6: I see, in your survey, You mentioned that some hospitals reported an indefinite period of embargo. What was their reasoning for this?
7: Well, by indefinite, uh, it it was meant uh, as long as necessary. So unfortunately, we didn't really delve further into the responses on the survey we gave them. But I I would speculate the hospitals that indicated uh, an indefinite period Uh, didn't really have a fixed policy and wanted to give the treating clinicians time to schedule and meet with patients before a a report was issued.
6: I see. How should radiology departments prepare themselves for this law? Do you think that we should establish a patient radiologist consult service?
7: Well, a number of institutions, I believe, already do this, uh, give opportunities for patients to interact with radiologists and discuss their reports. And to the extent that's feasible, I think that would be beneficial and and a great idea in terms of patient relations. I think the the major change radiologists are going to need to do is to make their radiology reports more user-friendly. So now that we're writing to a broader audience than just the ordering clinician, we need to really be cognizant of who's going to read the report and to the extent possible, do away with jargon and uh, acronyms and try and spell things out to a lay audience. Now, now uh, at one point, there was a concern that uh, having patients have access to these patient portals will re- result in us being inundated with phone calls. And that really hasn't been borne out, probably because patients have access to many online healthcare resources.
6: Do you think we need to create a legend to explain radiology terms and their implications, uh, especially for the really complex
7: verbiage and, and words? I think that would be useful. I, as, as I said, I think patients do have access online to a lot of healthcare resources. So if we don't explain, you know, what what uh, a complicated term is, they probably will get it from uh, Wikipedia or what other resource they, could, they can Google. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I think that would be beneficial. I think uh, certainly we should do away with using acronyms and, uh, and to the extent we... Uh, use jargon that sort of is keyed in toward our our ordering clinicians, we may want to do away with that. Uh, The important thing is we need to focus on, uh, you know, we're writing to a lay audience who doesn't have a medical degree, and our reports should as much as possible read for that audience.
6: Should our lexicon be completely modified in terms for for the patient then? Is that what we're heading towards?
7: It's going to be a, a process. It's not going to all happen at once, but I think over time we have to make our uh, uh, reports more understandable to anyone who picks them up.
6: So do you see this act creating a more litiginous environment for radiologists since this may create more confusion or misunderstanding, especially if somebody goes from one institution to another or from one radiologist to another?
7: I think it can actually cut both ways. On, on the one hand, the patient's going to receive his or her report immediately. And if they go to another institution and another radiologist to get, an, and get a different opinion, they're also going to get that report. So they'll have two conflicting ap- reports. And if they subsequently meet with an attorney, we have basically gotten rid of one of the impediments in terms of uh, building a lawsuit. But on the other hand, There is a growing body of litigation for radiologist's failure to communicate results. And if we can have evidence that the patient has downloaded our reports, that kind of gets rid of that. I see. So in in a way, it can be beneficial to us in that we will be able to prove communication, if not to the uh, ordering clinician, that the patient already has the information.
6: What role do you think that referring physicians will have because of this? Will they have a a greater role to communicate these results or will be the onus more upon us?
7: I think they're they're still going to be the the primary contact of the patient. And if the patient has questions, one would assume that's who they're going to turn to. I think it will put some pressure on them to uh, get in touch with the patient quicker with findings because the patient's going to get it online otherwise. I do think uh, it will be beneficial to radiologists that uh, there will be patients who now know that they have a radiologist as part of their healthcare team and can put a a name to the the report. To the extent clinicians were saying, you know, I I got an x-ray and this is what it shows, now it's going to show that the radiologists said this is what it shows. Uh, I think that could be beneficial in terms of uh, public relations for our profession.
6: I see. Finally, What do you think is the most ideal way to manage this delicate situation from both a patient standpoint and a uh, radiologist standpoint?
7: Well, I think we have to look at it as as being a a pro-patient revision to the law and not uh, an additional burden that's being put on radiologists. And we have to embrace this as being an opportunity to interface with the patient more and let them know they have a radiologist as part of their healthcare team. And uh, to the extent possible, give them avenues to uh, ask questions and issue, give us their concerns. And, you know, this will put patients in the driver's seat in terms of being in charge of their care. Uh, it will increase transparency and hopefully it'll keep things from dropping through the cracks. So on the whole, this, this can be, end up being a, a benefit to radiology and, and its uh, relations with the patients. Although it will create some, some uh, additional burdens in terms of how we restructure our reports. And
6: then a follow up question. You, you're, you said that is an embargo period appropriate? What do you think would be a good embargo period, or should there be an embargo period at
7: all? It's a tricky question, and it kind of depends on, on the, the type of case. The original arguments for the embargo period is that we didn't want a patient finding out that they had cancer while sitting alone. Uh, Without any emotional support, Uh, and it would be better if uh, it was broken to them in a a more caring way by a clinician they know. And so we still have that issue where you know we're we're issuing reports and the patient is maybe sitting in the waiting room already finding out the result before they get to see their doctor to find out what the result is. And you know, so so to some extent, giving some delay would be helpful, but in terms of Putting patients in charge of their care and making sure they don't uh, miss anything and that the communications happen, I think the benefits outweigh the the detriments and so except in some select circumstances, I think overall this is a good uh legislation so I think doing away with the embargo on the whole is is probably a good thing in terms of patient autonomy i'm
6: I'm, I'm interested to see what the outcome would be and um I want to thank you for your time and for your research on this topic, Dr. Mesrick. Um You can read the entire article in the July edition of the Radiology Journal. And thank you again for joining us.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning into our July episode of Radiology Podcasts. Please subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Please let us know what you like or don't like about the program so that we can continue to improve your listening experience. Take care.